The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Local Youth Worker. Uh, This is episode 342. I'm joined once again uh, by Chris Holland. Chris, how's it going? It's going great. Good to have you on again. You're helping us kick off uh, this new format of the podcast. Uh, And those who tuned in to our preview, uh, if you didn't, I'd say, hey, why don't you go check that out? It was pretty short. Um, You'll know a little bit more or have a little bit better grasp of what this episode is going to um, uh, the content and, and all that. But if you did not tune in, uh, we're starting with our essentials um, of, of youth ministry. Uh, it's going to be an ongoing segment. Uh, that's just, you know, we're shooting for three to five minutes. Who knows exactly how long this will go. Uh, but I was going to start off by asking Chris what he thought an essential of a youth room is. Um, and again, reminding our listeners, we're not going to say the Bible, because to me, that's a given. Uh, obviously, that needs to be an essential of any youth room. But Chris, if I, if I was to ask you, okay, what's one essential of a youth room? Uh, what would you say? You know, this goes back as far as like my um, my middle school and high school days in little Baptist church in Alabama, um, even to today, like trying to rework this one element of the youth room that I, just, I don't know. I think everyone I talk, it's one of those things that gets forgotten about, but then when it's highlighted, it's just beautiful, and everyone is always thankful it's there, except for the kids that went through the really awkward puberty years. And you know what I'm talking about. It's the picture memory wall board. Oh, man. Like, you gotta nice. you gotta have pictures. Like, I mean, I've yeah. heard, been to a million youth groups through the years, and I've seen churches that do things sort of like the old, uh, those old, old hundred-year-old churches do, where they have, you know, like their the senior pastor through the years, all the, the nice yeah. portraits. Well, they do the same exact thing, but with like their high school camp, like at RYM on the beach with their entire youth group, and they label the years, or like Beach Project with Campus Outreach, they do that big picture thing, and probably RUF at Suco and, and tons of other ministries do that. But I've just found it's one of those things that you often forget about until you're doing like kind of the spring cleaning or the pre, Hmm. you know, summer's ending, pre-start stuff. And then you start noticing it. And then before long, you're standing there for two, three hours rehashing all of what God's done and the fun stories Hmm. and the dumb crap that you did. I mean, and it's just something fun to look back. Did y'all have one of those? Growing up, oh yeah, totally. Good? And and just to let our listeners know, I, I had no idea what Chris was going to say uh, to answer that as an essential. But that's an awesome answer. Um, I love that. But I mean, for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, you know, sometimes we can forget. Uh, you know, youth ministry is, or the youth group, it's it's a family. Uh, yeah. We as a church are are a family, and just as any household is going to have pictures in it, uh, the youth room should have pictures of, of students in there, and. I I agree. Um, It it is so cool to see and to laugh um, at, wow, look at what you looked like in seventh grade. Now you're graduating. And (laughs) um, it just, it's, you know, conversation can be a challenge with students and it's a conversation starter. Easy, Um, very easy. Yeah. And, And you think of, you know, visitors who come in 
and and think, okay, wow, this is kind of like a family. This is cool. I want to be a part of this. Um, but no, I think I think that's an awesome answer, Chris. You know, and some something goes along with that. When I was, I've been in two churches that we didn't own the building, and so you can't really put an installation in that building. So what we did was we had poster boards, and we would have moms that created these huge poster boards of the pictures of trips and stuff. And so that mom would be in charge of bringing that poster board and pinning it or clamping it to the to a wall or to a board. So the kids always saw it there. Because you know how youth ministry is. It's like you want to guard your youth building to not be too adult or too clean or too nice. Because mm-hmm. then it ceases to kind of be that home or that dirty bedroom where the kid feels really <laughs> comfortable, you know? Like you're going to have mm-hmm. yellow, strange, mysterious alien stains all over the walls and the floor from God knows what. But like to have that wall there to, to it's kind of like an Ebenezer of sorts. It's a memory stone mm. of, of your past and to look back at it with just fond memories and awkwardness and fun. I mean, I love those things. And even when I go to new churches, like if I, I've, when I moved out here to Tucson, I found a, kind of a, a archetypal memory wall or whatever, and uh, even going through those old pictures that they had on their memory wall before they did some renovation, it was just beautiful, like to see where they had gone and where they're going. And and then I see some of those people now that I didn't know then, and I can look, think back to that. Tell me what happened in that picture. What what trip mm-hmm. was that? And kind of hear the story and the legacy of our youth group in the past. Hmm. Now that, that's really good. I, I like that. I think that's an excellent answer. And then just. Uh, the depth to that as well. Um, so something as simple as putting pictures up. Um, that's that's, that's awesome. And look, I, I look forward to hearing from the other co-hosts on this podcast of what they would think an essential uh, to a youth room is. And let me go ahead and say to our, our listeners, uh, write us, let us know. Um, remember podcast at rym.org, podcast at rym.org, and write us and let us know what what, what do you think are some essentials of a, of a youth room. I'd love to, to get some of those and uh, read those out uh, to our listeners. Uh, Chris, for now, we're going to transition to our next segment entitled Technically Speaking. Uh, those who listen to the preview know this will be an ongoing segment that we have uh, to look at various aspects of technology, and uh, we'll get to hear from Chris Martin today. So here he is. Uh, Chris, uh, thank you for joining us today. And uh, I guess I should say welcome back. Uh, I I knew I had you on and I had to go back and and check, but it was episode 320. um, And I know we were talking a little pre-recording, trying to figure out uh, when that happened and you had had a move move, uh, since then. Um, But it's good to have you back on. Yeah, man. It's glad uh, glad to be back on here. It's good to be back. And um, I hope it's uh, helpful this time, like hopefully it was last time. So, yeah, absolutely. And and you're actually a part of a new segment that we've entitled uh, "Technically Speaking." Uh, thanks to Kurt, uh, the name on that. Uh, and you're you're the first one on, so uh, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, first one. Yeah, well, I've I've not been called a trailblazer in, in many ways, but I'm happy to be a trailblazer <laughs> in this respect. So, if we don't like the name "Technically Speaking," I've got some other options like "Excellence." <laughs> okay. Um. So. Oh. Oh. Um. I like it. You know, like cool. you know, doing everything well, and then with technology. I don't know. Well, I like puns. Yeah. I'm just gonna say that. Yeah. Oh, I, hey, I think I think technically speaking is, is great. I think it's uh, it's it is punny and it's uh it's appropriate for the subject matter. It appears so. <laughs> and uh, for those who don't uh, remember Kurt, uh, I'm sorry, not Kurt. 
everybody knows Kurt, right? Because he's on so much. But those who may not know Chris, he is in charge of the newsletter entitled Terms of Service. Uh, you can go to termsofservice.social and subscribe to that newsletter. And let me just tell all of our listeners, you need to subscribe to this newsletter. It is very helpful. Uh, but not only that, it's also funny. Uh, is it, remind me, uh, Chris, is it Saturdays that you post the funnies? Is that right? Yeah. So technically this, the funniest is a different newsletter. Uh, Cause I didn't want people to feel like they had to sign up for all of it or, or you know, sure. all of it for one, but yeah, every Thursday I send out a, uh, a sort of a collective of articles, you know, here's what I've been reading this week. In fact, I'm running late on it today, but I'm um, like, here's what I've been reading this week. And at the bottom of those uh, Thursday newsletters, I have, you know, a funny tweet or something that I've read. And, and at, at the bottom there, there's a link for, uh, my Saturday newsletter, which is the funnies totally separate. And it's just a collection of gosh, I don't know the 10 to 15 funniest pieces of internet that I've read in the last couple of weeks. So, uh, it's fun, man, that man, that email, I started it just as like an aside, kind of unrelated to what we're talking about. I started that just for friends that we we had been like texting funny tweets or, or things like that to each other. And I was like, what if I just made a newsletter of this stuff and sent it to the 10 of us that often will text these things. And now it's up to like almost 500 subscribers, I think. So yeah. I think, I think a lot, I, yeah, I think people like getting their Saturday morning cartoons because they're maybe not getting them in the paper or on TV anymore. They're getting them to their email inboxes. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so everybody go, go to termsofservice.social, subscribe to that newsletter, and then you'll, you'll probably find the funnies on there somewhere yeah. to subscribe to uh, as well. Uh, but, but Chris is also the author of a forthcoming book uh, under the same title, Terms of Service, the, the subtitle, The Real Cost of Social Media. Um, and again, those who have listened, and, and I, I encourage everyone to go back to episode 320 and hear a little bit about Chris's background, um, has done a lot of work in social media. Um, but but Chris, I thought that'd be a good place for us to start today, um, is the title, uh, Terms of Service, not only for your newsletter, uh, but your book. Uh, and you explain this in the book, but why don't you tell us what, why Terms of Service? Well, to be frank, uh, it first was kind of a joke as the book title. Uh, <laughs> I, because it, it was me trying to, I have a very dry sense of humor that I, I laugh at myself more than other people laugh at me, frankly. So, uh, but I'll, I'll make, I'll do a lot of wordplay kind of jokes, kind of like technically speaking. Um, <laughs> but I was like, wouldn't it be funny if there was a newsletter called Terms of Service uh, or, or, or even a book called Terms of Service? Because nobody ever reads the Terms of Service, but maybe they read, then maybe they'd read this one. And, um, and so I kind of, I, I forget which came first, honestly. I forget if the book proposal or the newsletter came first because they were right around the same time that I was proposing the book and beginning the newsletter. And uh, when I put it as the book title, I was like, hey, this is just my placeholder. Like, I understand it's kind of goofy and it's kind of, you know, cheeky. And a lot of times I work in book publishing. I work for Moody Publishers. So like, I understand that sometimes cheeky titles, the author might really like them but it's often maybe not the best idea for the actual book sure. it, it tends to be better to sometimes be a bit more straightforward so i was like hey no no pressure for me to keep this placeholder title but i do think it's kind of funny and they said they really liked it the publisher bnh uh taylor combs my editor there he was like i really like it as long as we give it a subtitle that kind of explains you know in, in more explicit detail what the book is about uh, he said he really liked the kind of irony of of asking people to read the terms of service when we never do <laughs> And so, uh, so anyway, that's where it came from. And I think uh, it, it's made me laugh, honestly, that it's kind of been real and gotten this far. And I hope that some people just kind of laugh at it too and, and kind of get the joke. Yeah, 
for sure. But, but it, you do, I mean, you explain well in, in your book that uh, it's kind of sobering uh, some of these terms of, of service that, that are a part of some of these social media platforms that we're just, you know, I can't remember if it's Tim Challies who I first saw. Is it technically a lie if you agree that you've read the terms of service, but you actually have not? And there are all sorts of things in there. So maybe just dig into that a little bit for why that's concerning for Christians. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, um, gosh, I, I'd be interested. I remember, I think you're right. I think it was Tim who wrote that. And I, I forget what his answer was, but I've thought about that, that same question. Um, and I, I think I've seen articles before, maybe it was in a book I read, I, I forget where I saw it, but it would like the amount of time it would take the average person to actually read the terms of service and terms and conditions that uh, they saw, that they agree that they've read, like how much actual time would it take? And it's, you know, it's some unfathomable about like, it'd be like a part-time job to actually read all of them, let alone understand them, right? Like yeah. forget, forget the actual like man hours of reading them. If you're going to actually understand them, that would be even harder. So, uh, so yeah, but I think, you know, kind of the, the point behind the title is, yeah, I, I'm not as concerned. I mean, I am a little bit concerned with what's actually in the terms of service. Like I think it's iTunes that says you can't use iTunes to build a nuclear weapon or something. Um, and, and it's Spotify asks for access to your photos. And it's like, well, you know, I, I understand Like, I think you can like make your profile picture in Spotify. So that would be one way that they want to have access to your photos. But like, why does my music player need access to my photos on my phone? Like, I don't understand why, you know, this just make a whole lot of sense. And so I think there are frankly, a lot of things that are concerning that we do agree to in a very literal sense when we say that we've read the terms and conditions or, or terms of service. In fact, if anybody's wondering, I did some research and those are pretty interchangeable because I was like, is there a difference between terms and conditions or terms of service? Because this is a legal thing and I could see some technicality. And what I learned was actually they're kind of interchangeable. So anyway, I do think there are things literally in these terms to which we agree that are a problem, whether it's data privacy things or perhaps moral issues. However, what the book really endeavors to do is to dive into the more abstract terms that we to which we agree. Um, not the things that are on paper that we say, yes, you can take all my data in order for me to express myself on this platform. But, but like, what are we agreeing to as we use these platforms? Not the things that we check the box on or, or the data that we freely give up, but in what ways are we agreeing to have our lives and our minds and our hearts changed by these platforms because i think there's a whole sort of dark terms of service a sort of shadowy terms of service that we never implicitly or explicitly agree to but perhaps we do implicitly agree to these terms of service simply by serving these platforms um i was just gonna ask we can move back in a different direction after this but like I, i've just spent like a lot of the morning on spotify doing something and um and they did ask for when you want to make your own playlist art to go on your playlist, they'll ask you to get access to your photos. I was just wondering, which I, I don't, if that's whatever. Um, but I was just wondering, are you, um, are you glad they're actually asking instead of just taking it without asking? Because I think a lot of people are on the assumption that, um, I mean, now people, when you get a new app on your phone, it'll be like, ask not to track. I don't even know what that means really. Like I'm asking them not to track me. I'm not saying they can't track me. I just like, is there, 
is there any kind of like bright spot in that? It's like, at least they're asking instead of just <laughs> taking it on their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. I think they technically, to get access to your photos, I don't know if this has always been the case, but I think they do have to ask because whenever I download a new app, uh, or like a lot of times I'll go through seasons where I just deleted a bunch of social media apps from my phone. Like I never really use Instagram, but in an effort to try to do my due diligence in promoting this book, I've been trying to be a little bit more active on Instagram. And usually I don't have Instagram on my phone, but recently when I redownloaded it, um, they said, Hey, will you, would you give us access to your photos? And I actually, I, I marked, I'm only giving them access to select ones that I want to actually post. So I'm not giving them access to my whole library. So I think they, I think they have to do that at least in Apple products. Now I, I've never used Android, like Android devices. So I can't speak for those, but I know on Apple devices, I'm pretty sure that they have to ask for permission these days. And yeah, what well, you brought up the um, uh, ask them not to track. That's a new Apple feature, which I mean, Apple is not perfect. Don't get me wrong. They have a lot of uh, China problems is how I would describe it. Like they have they're a little, in my view, too, too buddy buddy with the Chinese government. However, when it comes to data privacy, who's, who's not users, these days? <laughs> yeah, that that's a good point. Um, but when it comes to data privacy for their users, at least their American users and their their Western users, um, they say privacy is a human right. I mean, it's one of their values, and they're not trading our data for revenue. Ima I mean, imagine how much money they they just hit the three trillion dollar mark. Uh, first company I think ever to do, first American company ever to do so. I mean, they'd be double that if they could trade the data of Apple users, but they don't. And so like Apple has really frustrated Meta slash Facebook and plenty of other companies that rely on tracking users and, and harvesting their data. They have frustrated a ton of those companies and really cut into their profits by simply adding that feature of, uh, you know, making apps ask, uh, if they can track you. And yeah, I have it turned on to where they're not even allowed. You can, if you have an Apple device and you're listening, you can, I think there's a setting. I was just looking at it the other day uh, where you can make it so they can't even ask to track you. It's just an automatic no. Um, and so I have, I have that turned on and it's, it's wonderful. They even have like, like privacy nutrition facts for apps now, where there's like a sort of label on apps that you download from the app store that say like, here's how this app tracks you and you, you know, and what, what, what information it tends to take and that sort of thing. So anyway, I think though app, Apple's not perfect. I do think that they are pretty trustworthy in that way. Can I, can I ask one more question about Please that? Do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I understand the whole privacy side. I get that argument, right? Um, but one thing that a lot of social media apps do is, and this is uh, algorithmic, is they pay attention to what you look at, what you tap on, what you, what, you know, and they give you more of that. Right. And in some ways I was thinking, look, I'm not a huge social media user. So I guess I should probably told you that before we get started. Um, I don't really use a lot of social media but I was trying to think about some of the positives of social media because it's kind of easy to jump on the negatives. We can like totally if we want to have like a if we want to throw it under the bus and stomp it, you know, like well, I'm down for that. But well, then let me just interject real quick, Kurt, and just say, I mean, that that's this has been Chris's job that, that he's done. Yeah. You know, I mean, social media. I mean, it, there, there's so many good things we can highlight about it. And I know just with the time that we have, we're probably going to dig into more of the, the concerns. But I just want to interject on that so our listeners yeah. will know. I mean, Chris has 
um, been in this world and can tell you positives for sure. So go ahead, Kurt. I, just I was just wondering if it's been the case for you or anyone that you talk to when writing this book, that someone learned something about themselves by what they're being fed by social media. Hmm. Now that would take like being able to step outside yourself for a second and say, Oh, look at this. Like I keep getting, um, whenever I've had Instagram on my, uh, whenever I've had Instagram on my phone, uh, I'll notice that my four use or whatever, are like the things it's always like people getting injured. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> it's like skateboarders, and people falling and it was that say about me i think it does say something about me um something john's like nodding like yes it does but i just wonder if you had any experience like that yeah totally um i actually wrote an article for tgc back in september called the insidious fake intimacy of algorithms um that addresses this in part addresses this very question um the reality is i think other people have said this too that uh, i mean I know other people have said this, but I forget who said it exactly this way, that our algorithms know us better than we know ourselves. Um, and I think that's totally true. Uh, that I mean, there have been people who have like learned they have mental health disorders or have discovered things about themselves that uh, they didn't realize until watching TikTok videos or coming across Instagram for you content. They were like, man, I never really thought of myself as this kind of person or interested in this kind of area or subject matter, but I've been seeing so much that maybe I actually am interested in this. And so I think that's positive and negative, right? Uh, I think it is negative that platforms feed us kinds of content that may be damaging to us in the long term. Like I was just about to say, I guess the flip, I was about to say, I guess the flip side of that coin is that when they realize what kind of person you are, when the algorithm has decided what kind of person you are, like for instance, your gender you know, or your sexual orientation or your political leanings, then they start to either, I mean, well, I guess that's up for debate whether they actually encourage your political leanings or your sex or whether they actually fight against it. I know. Anyway, the, but there's a flip side to that too, right? The negative side is that they can the best start way to, to describe. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. What were you going to say? The best way to describe it is they exploit it. For, yeah. for in whatever way they recognize something about you, they identify some sort of fact, some sort of interest or leaning or tendency, and they exploit it by either delivering. Sometimes uh, there have been studies that show both sides, actually. Sometimes they exploit it by showing you something that's so repulsive the other way that it makes you really mad, uh, and specifically when it comes to politics, or they recognize like, man, you're really interested in scantily clad women we're going to deliver you a ton more of that stuff you know it's not like they're going to deliver you the opposite of that they're going to deliver you a whole lot more of that and so um i think social media algorithms are designed to make us indulge in aspects of ourselves rather than maybe flee aspects of ourselves that we should flee um and so ultimately before we we don't have to get into a huge discussion on algorithms because we could spend an hour doing that but i think what people need to know is that the ultimate goal of these algorithms of these platforms is to get us to spend as much time on these platforms as possible. And that is often to our detriment. Mm -hmm. And so there, the algorithms that are at play in some ways is good that it reveals maybe even sin or tendencies that we have. Those algorithms may make us learn things about ourselves at the same time. I think those algorithms do a lot of harm by telling us it's okay to continue to consume content of a certain variety that I think would be unhealthy or, or at at the very, you know, explicitly sinful for us to continue to consume. 
Mm-hmm. Chris, this is this is fascinating to think about. I know we're just getting started, um, but we're going to stop here today uh, because we've got you back uh, joining us next week uh, to continue this discussion. So thanks, Chris. All right. That was Chris Martin. Uh, we're about to have Dr. Russell Moore joining us. Uh, many know who Dr. Moore is, but he is the uh, public theologian at Christianity Today and director of Christianity Today's Public Theology Project. Uh, he has contributed to the Washington Post, the New Yorker, I think the Wall Street Journal. Um, he served as the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. He was also on staff at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky for a while. Uh, he has published several books, uh, The Courage to Stand, Onward, The Storm-Tossed Family, I know he's published a book on adoption. He has a podcast. Um, there is a lot that he's done. And uh, for those who have heard about the, the preview to this episode, uh, we are getting uh, for, for our 50th, for RWAM's 50th anniversary, which again, just to reiterate that, if you didn't hear, uh, 2022 is RWAM's 50th anniversary. Uh, we're getting some, some notable people to come on, uh, but we're going to be interviewing them about aspects of their life uh, that maybe aren't as notable. Um, so instead of getting Dr. Moore to come on and talk about any certain topic or uh, theological issue, uh, I want him to share a little bit about his upbringing. And so as we come in, you'll get to hear Dr. Moore describing what kind of teenager he was like. So without further ado, here's Russell Moore. Uh, I was um, probably a very old teenager. I was uh, <laughs> I was uh, pretty, uh, pretty uh, serious and, uh, contemplative and, and so forth. Um, a very active in my church, very active in my church. As a matter of fact, um, I was, I was there Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, then, uh, something that was called training union or discipleship training, which is like a Baptist Sunday school at night at six o'clock on Sunday evening, then, uh, evening worship, Monday night visitation, Wednesday night uh, prayer meeting uh, and youth group meeting, uh, something usually on Friday, something usually uh, on Saturday. And in between, I was I would be at our um, Family Life Center gym hanging out with everybody. So wow. <laughs> the church was pretty central to my life. So, so you're on staff as a teenager, I guess, almost. Yeah, it kind of seemed that way, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, and, and, and I know too, as we think about teenage years, uh, we have yearbooks, uh, I assume they still have yearbooks. Um, and in those yearbooks, we typically find a list in the back, you know, most athletic, uh, most likely to succeed, most courteous class clown. And there are others, Wh- which category would best describe, uh, Russell Moore as a teenager? Well, I mean, I, I was, in the yearbook as uh, friendliest. Uh, So that's, uh, that was at least what, uh, what they thought at the time. Um, And uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think that, uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, what one can only know oneself from the inside. And so it's hard to know, hard to know how, uh, how others would classify you. Mm-hmm. Well, how would your teachers classify you? What kind of a student would they have said you were back then? Um, I was a good student, but often uh, bored and distracted. So if it's something that interested me, I was really uh, into it. And if it uh, if it was something like 
algebra or geometry or calculus or something like that, then I was not good at all <laughs> and would do anything to avoid it. So yeah. most of my, I found the other day, just going through some old things, I found an old journal that my uh, high school Spanish and French uh, teacher I'd had her for many classes and she, uh, she gave that to me and she had inscribed in it. One day you're going to be a writer and I want you to get started now, uh, with, wow. uh, with this journal. I'd forgotten all about it, but, um, yeah, wow. that, was, that was pretty cool to find. Yeah. And is that something you aspired to, to do one day or was that kind of, did that catch you off guard? No, that didn't catch me off guard. I was sort of, uh, pulled in three directions at the time. Um, I had uh, experienced a call to ministry pretty early, uh, maybe around 12. And I went to my pastor at the time and said, I think, um, I think I might be being called to ministry. And he said, uh, okay, well then uh, we'll do a youth night and have you preach in three weeks. And my response was, well, I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about some time in the future. But he threw me in the deep end of the pool. Uh, so I did that. But then as, as time went on, I, I was really conflicted uh, about that call. And for a number of reasons. But uh, one of them being, I just couldn't see myself um, doing what I saw a lot of, uh, a lot of the models in ministry uh, doing. I just didn't fit me. So I was pulled toward uh, two other things, uh, political life, government, and journalism. And so uh, I was sort of trying to sort through uh, the three of those for a long time. And the providence of God, all three of them have <laughs> ended up being, being uh, part, of my, part of my life every day. So, um, hmm. That's interesting. And, and I do have to go back a minute. I mean, there's so much I want to ask you about, but when you said um, that you were bored most of the time in, in school, um, this might be hard to answer, but was that because you weren't being challenged enough that you were just academically a little bit um, ahead, you could say, of some of your, your peers? Uh, well, no, I think it was um, because, uh, again, if it's something that interested me, uh, that sort of captured my imagination. I was I was really involved in it. But if it if it wasn't, if it seemed to me, uh, well, I mean, math um, and sort of physics and stuff like that is a complete foreign language uh, to <laughs> me, and uh, was then is now. <laughs> I'm with um, you. That's yeah, <laughs> and so and so that was that was really tedious and and uh, difficult for me. And then other things would be. I mean, I was, I look back and see now, and this was true later on in college and seminary too, that a lot of what I was doing is kind of self-educating. Um, I didn't see it that way. I was just exploring stuff I was interested in, mm -hmm. but that's what was going on uh, sort of uh, behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get back to your early, um, uh, years of ministry and preaching as a teenager, but it, I'll get to that in just a second. Um, I'm assuming many people are, are listening to this as they're driving down the road, and we know that a major milestone of a teenager is getting their driver's license. I know you've trained your own children in driving. I'm about to have one who gets a uh, driver's license um, pretty soon, uh, which is kind of frightening. Um, but what do you remember about getting your license and learning to drive? 
Well, it was way too early. Uh, I, at the time, Mississippi would uh, give a, dri a driver's permit at 14 mm -hmm. and a driver's license at 15. I wasn't by any stretch of the imagination ready to be driving when I started driving. Um, and my dad taught me to drive. He sort of had the deep end of the pool philosophy too. So I learned to drive on the Lake Pontchartrain Bridge uh, going in and out of New Orleans, which is uh, the world's uh, terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's the world's longest uh, man-made bridge. And there are uh, 18 wheelers all over the place. And I was absolutely uh, terrified. But, you know, I learned how to drive. <laughs> wow. Yeah, a fellow Mississippian, I can remember. Yeah, it was still 14 uh, when I was uh, going through high school as well. And I know they changed that maybe the, the year after uh, for me. So, yeah, I remember... Yeah, my parents were thinking that was pretty young as well, 14 and 15. I um, had three wrecks uh, mm -hmm. within three weeks, um, uh, <laughs> in a period not long after getting the uh, driver's license. And I mean, Hopefully none of them not were, on the bridge. None of them, <laughs> no, and none of them were serious. But uh, the third one, uh, when I had to call my dad to say, I've had another wreck, I genuinely contemplated, should I just get in this car and just drive and just get, get out of here because I did not want to tell him uh, that. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was too, too early for me. Wow. Okay. Hey, do, do you remember your first car? Yeah, I uh, bought for, I think, $600. Uh, and I'm not sure it was worth that. <laughs> An old uh, green, mint green pickup truck that uh, the brakes on it, you would have to just start pumping them. Um, you know, <laughs> when you could see in view the stop sign, you started on the braking at that point. So wow. it was, uh, it, yeah, it was not the safest thing, but that was the first one I had. <laughs> and did that have a cassette player in there or a track? Um, I don't think it had anything. Um, <laughs> I, I don't remember that it had anything uh, at all uh, okay. in it. Well, what, what would you have been listening to when you were uh, typically uh, driving in the car? Uh, I would, I was listening to a variety of things. I mean, I've, I've always loved uh, kind of old school country music. Um, so I would have been listening to that. I also would have been listening to sort of top 40, 80 stuff of the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, later on, uh, earlier, uh, not as much, but by the time I would say a sophomore, I would have been listening to that. And I would have been listening to a lot of um, contemporary Christian music, uh, Amy Grant and uh, Petra, uh, which yeah. was a Christian kind of rock band uh, at the time. Uh, someone that I was introduced to just because I was in the Christian bookstore a lot. And the manager said, I think that you would like this. And he gave me a Michael Card uh what well, the time was a tape and i i went and listened to it and it was deeply shaping i listened to everything that um, michael card put out wow. and i think that really taught me more than anything how to read the bible how to uh, interpret mm. scripture and um you know i he's now a friend and lives down the road here uh, but he was, he was really important uh, in my life. And it, I took a student with me one time traveling somewhere, uh, speaking, one of my students at Southern, and this person had had no experience with 
contemporary Christian music of any kind, much less kind of eighties era. And so I said, Oh, well, you've got to listen to this. So I found a bunch of these. So we just listened to that all the way. And he said, I'm just realizing that I'm hearing your theology mm. <laughs> all through this music. Like, yep. You're right. Wow. That's true. Hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask being in Nashville now, if you get to meet, I mean, Michael Card, you listed Amy Grant as well. I mean, she's in the Nashville area. Yeah, too, I believe she is. Yes, yes, yes. And that's yeah. most of my friends here are singer songwriters. Um, and I'm, I'm usually the only untalented person in, <laughs> in a room uh, around here. So you don't sing along with them, I guess. No, okay. no, that would be bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, who are some of your early uh, role models in life growing up? Uh, well, I had a pastor that I respected uh, immensely uh, named M.L. Thaler, who was pastor of my church, Will Market Baptist Church, a youth pastor that I respected immensely, uh, who's actually still in uh, ministry, Steve White. Um, and we had... I don't know how many people had a really shaping and forming interim pastor, but I did. Uh, we had a man by the name of Argel Smith, who was our interim pastor for a while, and he was really influential uh, on me. He was somebody who, um, uh, he was just different in a good way, and, uh, and he was uh, influential. And then uh, one of my, my first boss, uh, Congressman Gene Taylor um, was really important to me for not just kind of at the latter part of my teenage years, but then on through to now. His my youngest son's named Taylor Eugene mm. after him, mm. and mm. he was a big he was a big influence. Well, if you could take a teenage Russell Moore out for a cup of coffee, um, what are some things you'd like to tell him? Uh, what, what what's a truth maybe you, you needed to hear during those years? Well, I, what I needed to hear was essentially take no care for tomorrow. I, I spent a lot of time worrying um, uh, in, in a way that just was a waste of time. But I'm not sure that I would tell uh, teenage uh, Russell Moore that or anything else, because I think the ignorance um, was, a, was always a blessing. Uh, not knowing what was uh, coming and just seeing the way that, uh, that God was working without my seeing it uh, in, mm -hmm. in multiple different ways. I, uh, someone asked me one time, what, what are your regrets so far in life? And I said, well, I have a lot of regrets in terms of things that I would not want to do and would not do if I were starting over again. But you know, it's kind of um, kind of the stepping on the butterfly uh, issue. If you pull pull any one of those things out, uh, uh, who knows what the re result sure. would be? Okay, if you had um, if you had to point to one significant childhood event that the Lord used to shape you, uh, what what comes to mind? Uh, my dad had a massive heart attack when I was twelve. Um, and I was um, awakened uh, early the next morning by my grandmother uh, saying that he'd had uh, a heart attack and that he wasn't expected to live uh, through the night um, or through the day. And he did live through the day. And then he was told, well, you won't live through the week. Uh, when he survived that, he was told, you really probably won't live through the year. There's so much heart damage. And so he was kind of told that he was 37 
at the time. He lived exactly 37 more years and uh, lived double that. And just about all the way through to the end, mowing grass and, you know, weed eating and doing everything he wanted to do. Um, But at the time we didn't, we of course didn't know that. Uh, So that was really, um, that was really, I think, shaping in ways I know and shaping in ways that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sort of, um, I, I was uh, talking to a group of people who also write and then thinking about writers that have been important in my life. And it was striking to see how many of them had lost their dads mm-hmm. at some point in adolescence. And I didn't, but I almost did and sort of lived with the threat of that um, yeah, for a the, long time. That's what I was going to ask you. You said you were 12. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was 12. Yeah. And so, you know, he's not going to live through the day, not going to live through the week, not going to live through the year. So how are you all as a family just kind of moving forward? I mean, just it seems like you're, you're walking on eggshells. Uh, well, my mother is sort of a, um, optimist beyond uh, measure and somebody who she, my father's heart attack was on the 26th and my younger brother's birthday was on the 28th of April. And she put together a birthday party, came home from the hospital long enough to do a full birthday party for my little brother and then went back. I mean, that's just sort of, that's how she was. And so she um, she sort of, uh, at that time he was encouraging her. I'd like for you to, I'd like for you to have some, uh, vocation and skill in for when I'm gone, she went back to school and, uh, became a teacher, uh, at that time, all later in life and all, uh, all while she was dealing with everything else and teenage kids and, uh, everything. And then taught for, I don't know, 20, 20 plus years. Wow. That's amazing. Um, I, I want to get back to, uh, you talking about, um, kind of some early calls to, to ministry. Um, you, you said you, uh, voiced to your pastor that you, you might be called to ministry and okay, I want you to preach in, in three weeks. Talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, did, did you preach in those three weeks and how did that go? And then talk to us a little bit about just your sense of a call to ministry. Uh, I, yeah, I did preach in three weeks, um, as uh, there's a picture of it, uh, in the New York times last week, because they oh, wow. were doing, um, a story on, uh, sort of an analysis on baptism and they wanted, uh, they had a picture of my son's baptism. They wanted a picture of mine. And so what, uh, there weren't, people weren't taking pictures of, uh, baptisms at the time. I don't have one. Uh, but I did have that picture, which was shortly after the baptism, standing in front of that baptistry preaching. I was on a little stool uh, that they put up there so that I could see over the pulpit. Uh, and I'm glad that there's not audio. It was terrible, <laughs> but um, but I was doing I, I was doing the you know the best I could uh, at the time. And it's it's funny when I say that I was. Um, uh, that I was inordinately, I think, worried and, and anxious about things. One of the things that was a great uh, fear uh, of mine was public speaking. It was uh, absolutely terrifying. I couldn't imagine doing it. And so I have, 
Uh, I've got a, my Bible from my teenage years, uh, old King James Bible over here, and I often will flip that open to see the things that I highlighted um, at the time because I can remember exactly why I highlighted those things. And so there's a lot in there about um, uh, God shaping and forming the tongue, but God sending Moses and sending Jeremiah and giving the strength to, to do it. I was, I was worried uh, about Mm. that. And I mean, now I, uh, it doesn't, public speaking obviously doesn't bother me at all, (laughs) but it did. uh, But that's what I was worried about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Two, Two questions from that. Do you remember which passage you preached on? And then how long did you preach? Uh, this was a, uh, my pastor gave me this little, or I remember this little orange book called something like snappy sermon starters. So (laughs) it would, it would give you sort of, um, a title and some texts, uh, to kind of get you going. And so that's what I did. And so it was all through the canon. It was on, um, uh, clothes, clothing sort of metaphor, kind of, um, full armor of God, but, but everything. So, you know, a, a hoary head is a crown of wisdom, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so it was, it was all through the Bible and it lasted, I think eight minutes is mm-hmm. all it was. And, uh, but it, it was multiple passages, a lot of Proverbs. Uh, okay. There. Yeah. And you're positive. There's no audio anywhere. There's no audio. anywhere, okay. <laughs> And I'm, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> uh, the next time that I would be, there was a big pause. I didn't preach again until uh, my first semester in seminary. I mean, obviously I was speaking uh, kind of on the campaign trail and so forth, but I wasn't preaching until then. And it, I spent a lot of time on a sermon from Ecclesiastes 12 and I happened to mention in Hebrew class during prayer request time, pray for me, I'm preaching Sunday, I'm really nervous about it, not realizing that my Hebrew prof, his area was Ecclesiastes. He said, what are you <laughs> preaching from? It's Ecclesiastes 12. He said, well, why don't you bring your sermon uh, outline to me and let me look at it? So I did. I'd worked on that for months. And his response was, well, the good news is there is still time to redo this. It was a Friday <laughs> afternoon. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> so that was not, not a welcome word. Wow. Wow. Hmm. Um, let, let's shift to, to youth culture. Um, uh, so when you look at youth culture today, oftentimes we can uh, roll our eyes and think of just the, the you know, the, the horrors that are out there. But we know there are good aspects as well. And I'm curious, are there aspects of youth culture that you wish you had access to when, when you were a teenager uh, but then at the same time, what are those aspects of youth culture you're grateful were not around when you were a teenager? Well, I think it's um, it's much easier to find tribes uh, and, and to find community um, now, and and that's a positive thing. Although it it probably wouldn't have been good for me at the time because my tribe was a really a group of really different people in a youth group and a group of really different uh, people, different from each other uh, all over the place. And that was good. Um, and I think that I'm really encouraged by, um, I just uh, finished uh, teaching a university course with um, all of my students were, or most of them 
were not only not Christians, but had never met uh, an evangelical Christian before. Um, but they were filled with curiosity. Uh, the questions they wanted to know about were theological questions uh, because uh, they, they just had a, they had a curiosity and they had a humility. Uh, so I don't buy the, the sort of the, um, I have never seen the kind of uh, caricature of Gen Z as being arrogant and haughty. No, that's, that's not at all. That's not at all what I've seen. Now, what I'm glad wasn't there. The first thing that I'm glad uh, for is that there wasn't um, social media because I would have. Uh, I would have not only possibly destroyed myself with it, but I also would not have grown um, intellectually uh, or in terms of curiosity because with social media, what you have to do is to immediately form an opinion on something rather than uh, spending, there were, there were, I, I went through a really, really uh, deep spiritual crisis when I was 15. And I think about all the time, if I had had social media at the time, and, and if I were sort of tweeting my way or Snapchatting my way through that spiritual crisis, I I probably would have either what we would call now deconstructing and just totally uh, walked away from the faith, or I would have said, well, uh, this is our team and we're awesome and I'm not going to think about these things and would have committed myself to one of those two uh, things in a way that would have been awful. Instead, I was able to sort of spend a long time listening and reading and praying and thinking and trying to sort all this stuff out. Uh, and that's what that's what I needed. So I'm glad that wasn't there. Mm. You and me both. Um, I'm curious, so you said you just finished up a class. Um, if you had a room filled with teenagers, what are some things you'd like to tell them? This might be fresh from something you just delivered in the classroom, but, but I'd love to, to hear some thoughts of what you would like to share to a room filled with teenagers. Well, I think there, there's nothing that would be necessarily unique um, uh, to teenagers because I think that we're all, uh, we never really leave adolescence. Uh, there was a, a book I read earlier this year, I can't even remember the name of it, that argued that uh, everybody is in some way still in middle school hmm. and uh, the middle school problems stay with you. And I think that's, I think that's right and true. So um, when I'm in a group of uh, teenagers, I would talk about the importance of uh, ultimate things uh, of the gospel and of, um, of uh, the person of Christ. And that's, uh, that's the main thing that, with these very secular uh, kids, when they would ask me questions, I mean, I wasn't there to be uh, an evangelist or to do uh, youth ministry or campus ministry, but they would come and ask questions. And what I would always do is to just point them to the person of Jesus, just spend some time in the gospel of Mark or the gospel of John, pick any of the gospels and just spend some time with this person. And uh, I really do think that there is something about him um, that's 
Beekner, who was a, another big influence from afar on me as a teenager, uh, wrote one time, uh, there's not, I can't give you the proofs and the arguments, but there is something about him that uh, makes me uh, want to follow him and to believe what he tells me. Mm. And so just spending time with that, that if I had just a limited amount of time, that's what I would do. Mm, that's good. Um, I know we're going to need to draw this to a close in, in just a minute. And so I want us to, to shift to, to parenting and to youth workers before we close this out. And I do want to want to go back a second, just thinking about um, social media and you talking about just be, being so thankful you did not have that as a teenager. Um, how do you as a parent seek to parent your own children in the midst of social media? What, what are some helpful guidelines and uh, tips that you'd love to pass on? Uh, well, we don't uh, we don't allow them to have uh, social media uh, presence um, until they're uh, eighteen. Uh, we we allow them to have a really restricted um, phone, uh, so they have they have access to all sorts of other things, and they can be in connection with. That we allow them to text, and we allow them to um, you know, play video games that interactive video games, all that sort of thing, but not social media. Uh, so we, we defer that. I understand the people who say, well, we want to train them to use these things while they're at home. I, I understand that argument. I just don't buy it because I think that those years are so important in terms of shaping you for the rest of your life that I don't, uh, I, I don't want them to be uh, in the middle of uh, social media. Sure. And I applaud you because that's a, that's a rarity. Um, how, how has that been received in the home? Is it, um, are you able to, to with, communicate with, that? With great joy and relief. Hmm. Um, oh. I mean, I think that it, it would be different, I suppose, if you had kids who were uh, already uh, active on social media and you pulled them out of it. But um, not only have I not had any complaints from many of my sons about that, um, they have, I, I really do think that there is a sense of freedom from it that they can blame on me, hmm. you know? So I, I'm not, I don't have a, an Instagram account cause my dad won't let me, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's hmm. easily understandable by people. And that's great. No, that's a, that's an encouraging testimony to hear. Um, I'd love for you to share too, just some of the best parenting advice someone else has, has told you. You know, a lot of the parenting advice that uh, mattered to me is um, is a cliche, uh, and I, I realize now that it's a cliche because it's true, <laughs> and uh, it's the reason it's repeated so often. But people would uh, often say, "You'll be surprised at how quickly this goes by," mm. uh, and uh, I thought at the time, "Yeah, yeah, that's what they always say." It's completely true. And uh, so sort of the preciousness of uh, time uh, with them. I, I said to my wife um, the other day, I said, I love my kids and I wish what I could have. I miss my kids at each stage. And so I wish I could almost have a family reunion mm -hmm. with uh, all of them as babies and as five-year-olds and mm -hmm. as not as 13 year olds, but you know, <laughs> just as skip over else. that one. Yeah. yeah, skip over that one. But that's true. It, it really is true. And if you start to recognize that. And the other thing I think that I was 
probably with parenting, um, really worried about making sure that boundaries were set and that uh, and, and so forth. A lot of what I needed to to do was to realize how to just relax. And so there were all sorts of things that I learned that not that I overreacted to them uh, in in the external way, but just in my mind, I would, oh no, uh, what's what's happening with this? And you know, later on you realize, okay, that's just this this is just what what happens. And that's not that's not anything to to freak out about. Mm-hmm. Well, this might have just answered that, but what's an encouragement that you'd love to tell parents of teenagers? Is it that relax? Well, I tell I tell parent I tell parents of small children all the time. As recently as last night, um, I had a couple of my uh, former students from when I was a youth pastor back in Biloxi twenty seven years ago, I think, uh, who came to the house, and um, one of them has small children. And I said what I say all the time: um, you're at the really difficult, in one sense, time right now, which is uh, yeah, that was five uh, years old. And there's a joyfulness that comes with their growing. It really is a lot of uh, fun to get to know uh, this person. If you realize and know kind of um, those years are rough for everybody in some way or, or the other. And if you sort of step back from all of your worry about that and just be present. It can actually be a, a joyful uh, experience. There's mm-hmm. a, an artist uh, named uh, Andy Gullihorn here in Nashville mm-hmm. who has a song, Teenagers, about how um, it's a really hilarious song, but it about is. how teenagers are, are, can be humbling, and that's mm-hmm. true, but, uh, but in all the best ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that. Song is excellent. I've got to tell everybody if you come to youth theater training, Andy will be joining us. Oh, that's great um, as well. So we're yeah, we're excited about having him with us. Um, I'd love for us to end talking uh, to youth workers a minute, um, and I'd love for you to talk about some priorities for youth workers, um, specifically in their their personal life, not their life as a youth worker, but kind of their behind the scenes in the, in the home. What are some priorities you'd love to impress upon youth workers? Well, it's nothing new or um, or uh, shocking. Um, it, it's the ordinary uh, means of grace. Uh, being in the uh, scripture, finding a way to be regularly in prayer, uh, and finding the ways to sort of hack your life to where you trick yourself into doing that. And that's going to be different for different people. But that's that's really important, as well as having uh, friendships and relationships with people who can understand, to some degree, uh, student ministry, but who aren't uh, competitors, you know, for for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. so that you really, you can really have people who aren't in your church, they aren't parents of your your kids, and, and, but you also have just freedom to talk about what's happening and have people to pray with you and for you. That's, I think, key. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a, a good word to end on. Dr. Moore, um, it's a privilege to be able to sit down and, and talk with you. We appreciate your, your ministry and just thanks so much for taking the time to come on today. Oh, glad to. Good to talk to you. Oh, come and buy without money. Oh, come.